open up to the book of Judges, chapter 3. That's where we'll be. I want you to think this morning of the biggest prodigal in your life right now. A prodigal is one who kind of runs away, right, for a season. We think of the prodigal son returning. And in that season of when the prodigal has run and hasn't returned yet, those are some painful times. Do you ever wonder if the prodigal in your life is too far gone? Do you ever wonder if she's beyond the reach of even God? Do you wonder if he's sinned so much that God probably couldn't save him? This morning I'm here to tell you this. Never stop praying for the hopeless cases. Never stop praying for the hopeless cases. I'm not the only one to say that. Howard Cadle is a guy whose life screams this. He grew up in a home with a Christian mom and an alcoholic father, and by the age of 12, he was already following after his dad. He was raging and out of control, and pretty soon he joined the crime scene, organized crime. He was a con man. His mom said, always remember that at 8 o'clock, your mom will be on her knees praying for you. That didn't seem to slow him down at all. He was running toward a life of sin. Pretty soon the power of sin, of, of sex and money, and just the, the, the power that he had of being in control consumed his life. At one point he, was pulled, he pulled a gun on a guy and raged. He pulled the trigger and the firearm didn't go off for whatever reason. And a guy quickly knocked it out of his hand. He looked at his watch. It was exactly 8 o'clock at night. A few years later, the doctors came and told him that he had six months to live. He was dying. So he went home, a pretty pitiful sight. He was penniless, and he went to his mom, and he said this to his mom. He said, Mother, I've broken your heart. I'd like to be saved, but I've sinned too much. The old woman opened her Bible and read Isaiah 118. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And on that March morning, this man gave his life to Christ. And after he gave his life to Christ, he became a brand new person. He took his con skills and he started making money hand over fist in a very legitimate fashion. He was so moved by his Lord and Savior that he gave away a full 75% of it to fund different things. He began to fund revival crusades. And later on in the area of Cincinnati, he began to preach himself. And he said this as he would preach. He'd say, I don't know how much time I have left. But to my last dying breath, I will preach and celebrate the healing and freedom that I found in Jesus Christ. Never stop praying for the hopeless cases. I have a hunch you're sitting here this morning because you have this, this deep sense that with God there are no hopeless cases. And so hope continues. Hope goes on. You know, we love rescue stories, don't we? We're, we're completely intrigued by hostage crises that are, avoid, uh, um, that, that are averted, fireman stories. Uh, there was a surfer that was just rescued by another surfer on the north shore of Hawaii this last week. We love rescue stories. Come to my rescue is different than come to the rescue, though, right? Come to the rescue is intriguing, but come to my rescue arouses more than just curiosity. Imagine this scene next to a, an article as you're scrolling through your phone kind of reading something. It might be interesting to read of a dramatic Coast Guard rescue off of the icy waters of Alaska. That might be kind of interesting, right? But soon enough, you'd scroll on and look at something else. 
But imagine that you're bobbing in the water and the icy knives are taking your life away with every single second and you hear the sounds and you see this sight coming towards you. A little more than arousing curiosity? That's riveting, right? Why? That's the difference between come to the rescue and come to my rescue. Come to my rescue is all-absorbing. That that has something personal to it. That affects our lives. I want you to think of the fact of, of, of rescue right now in your life. And the reality is that rescue comes in various sizes and shapes, doesn't it, in different seasons of life. There's financial rescue. There's, there's a physical health or physical threat that comes on that you need rescuing from. There's emotional danger. There's legal trouble. What about the spiritual? What about when your very soul is in danger? What I know to be true, and this is a real struggle for those of us who live in the Silicon Valley, is this. The stuff of life has this way of distracting us from soul danger. Our souls can be deeply in trouble, and we just miss it. You know why? We're eating well. We have pains for, we have medications for our pains. We have a, you know, a posturepedic mattress, so we sleep decent. Um, and, and, and we kind of blind ourselves to the fact that our soul is in trouble. The book of Judges introduces us to three people who are specialists at rescue. They sniff out soul trouble, and they are moved to act. Let me take you back to this verse for a moment that we just kind of meditated on. By the way, Tim, Tim put this verse up during the middle of a solo. One of the things that people misconstrue about a solo in church is this. Um, when there's musical interludes, you know what that's doing? That's giving you time to just kind of breathe and soak it in. You know what I found myself doing here this morning, unconsciously, was as Tim played back through a melody of a line we just sang, I rolled through that lyric in my head in sort of a different way than when I'm singing it and seeing the words and hearing all of you sing it. Um, I would invite you, any Sunday, have your Bible open during musical worship. And sometimes we'll put verses up there to kind of point your, you know, your attention toward a specific idea or something the song might be talking about. But have your, have your Bible open. Let the Word of God speak. Many times we're singing Scripture, actually. So unlike maybe other places... Tim's not leaving a solo spot so you can see, hear how amazing Tim is. He's giving it space to kind of breathe. And on this last one, word of God speak, this verse came up. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. We're about to dive into the book of Judges yet again. I've kind of kidded about this, but Judges doesn't have a lot of devotional material from it. People don't tweet from Judges. That's the bottom line in general. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. As I was meditating on this verse this morning, knowing I wanted to start with this, thinking, let's, let's give credence to, let's give weight to the book of Judges that maybe isn't as dog-eared as other portions of scripture, because God chose to preserve this for some reason. As I was meditating on this verse, it dawned on me, this, this reality about this hope that we gain hope based on the character of God that is revealed in the actions of rebels. We gain hope based on the character of God revealed in the actions of rebels. Think about your own self for a moment. Isn't your character revealed more clearly by your actions toward those against you than those who are for you? 
When it says love one another, be patient with one another, be forgiving with one another, help one another, that's super easy with people who love you, forgive you, are patient with you, and help you. How about those who are your enemies? How about those who mock you? How about those who spit in your face? Now envision being sovereign. Now imagine being perfect. Now imagine having every right to not put up with that. Friends, never stop praying for hopeless cases. There's hope based on how God shows mercy to rebels. And as we read through the book of Judges, we see rebels. And we see ourselves in the book of Judges. And we see God's actions towards them. Judge for Yourself is a series that um, that is just kind of walking through Judges. And we've, we've finally made it to the actual Judges. We had a couple of weeks of, of, of introduction, which is what chapters 1 and 2 do. And we're going to cover uh, an entire chapter here today as well. Before looking at a few specific stories, individuals within the book, I want to think about stories generally for a moment. Uh, not every story is created equal. If someone says, let me tell you a story, your brain immediately begins to say, to kind of sift into this and say, is this, is this a true story? Is this a fable? Is this uh, something that happened to you uh, earlier with some... Uh, extracurricular bonus parts added in, right? Your brain just sort of does that. We know that stories aren't all created equal. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is commanding a younger preacher to preach the word. He says, keep preaching the word. He says this, for a time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but will turn away from listening to the truth and catch this, they'll wander off into myths. They'll wander off into stories. Different kinds of stories than preaching the word. He's contrasting the truth-telling of God's word. Stick to that. And don't get sidetracked into myths. Don't get sidetracked into stories. So when we're digesting narrative in the Bible, uh, we are digesting true stories about God and his people. It's worth talking about how to, to digest narrative of the Bible because more than half of the Bible is narrative. It's storytelling about events and people and the way that God works in and through them. Here's a couple thoughts about narrative. One is that we aren't always told how or why God does something. Okay, So as you read through a story, uh, you'll be looking, why and how? God, why did you do that? We don't know. God chooses to tell us incredible details sometimes and leaves other details completely out. It's frustrating. Does it sound like life a little bit, right? As we go through our own story, aren't there times you'd love to know a little bit more detail? How, God? Why? When? God doesn't always tell us those. And that's true of, of narrative, too. Unlike storybooks that you might read to your kids at night or sitcoms that you might watch, there isn't a moral to the story each and every time, either. You don't get to the end of a story and say, well, let's look for the moral of the story. Sometimes there just isn't a one-to-one ratio there. Unlike a lot of the New Testament letters, which issue direct commands, do this, and direct prohibitions, don't ever do this, that's wicked, narrative tends to teach a little bit more indirectly. So in some ways, I'd say there's a little bit more work to it. Instead of just do this, don't do that, this is a good godly thing to do, this isn't, in, in story and in narrative, there's a little bit more sifting to do, right? You have to sit with it a little bit longer because there's not going to be these direct correlations all the time. Finally, as you read the, the narratives, as you read stories, 
It's good to read at kind of 10,000 feet sometimes. What I mean by that is this, not plodding through and looking up every single word you ever don't uh, know, but read the whole thing once in a while, all in one sitting or all in a couple of sittings. What that does is that kind of gives you a bird's eye view of what's going on. And here's what you can do. You can look for the character of God in, in, in the book. God, who are you and what are you up to? How do you move in, in history? And you get a different view of that if you read the whole book in one sitting rather than get hung up on different little arguments or different little things. The book of Acts is fascinating this way. Just kind of look at the early church and read through it in a couple of sittings and you kind of pull back and and you see the character of God on display. You see the way that God works on display. All right, when we last left Israel, uh, they had chosen the, the apple that rotted. Remember, they chose sin instead of remembering their God who gives. So on our scales last week, we, we, we illustrated that with the communion elements. They, they didn't remember. Instead, they chose the, the apple and they, they were enslaved because of it. Fundamentally, what Israel had done is they had invited another into the dance. God had invited them into a marriage relationship and they were dating on the side with, with false gods in this new land. Like us, their sin led to slavery. And this time, God saw fit to have them be enslaved at the hand of King Kushan for eight years. The Bible says that they served him for eight years. This was involuntary. This was slavery going on. Now, look in Judges chapter 3, verse 7. This is what put them there. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then God raised up a savior. We're going to meet three judges this morning. Uh, judge number one, come on down. This is Othniel. Follow along with me in verse nine. It says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathiam. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Othniel is from the line of Judah. If you want a pedigree for leadership uh, and, and all of that, this is Othniel. He's not only the first judge, Othniel is kind of the poster child judge. So depending on your era of Disney movie, he's Gaston with a lot better manners. Um, he's Flynn Rider. He's Prince Charming. He is the guy that you would say, sparkly teeth, bulging muscles, that's our guy. He's the leader. He looks like a leader. Hunted in it for the scriptures, you can't find a single thing written about Othniel that's bad. Do we know that Othniel's a sinner? He had to be. He's of the human race. But we don't see it in scripture. He is kind of the quintessential leader. His wife, by the way, is daughter of Caleb. Caleb was one of those who came back with a favorable report. Remember that? He was a faithful man of God and said, hey, we can take these land of giants. Let's do this. And he had a daughter. He gained her hand. We saw this in early in Judges. He gained her hand in marriage by leading a successful mission, uh, displaying bravery. There's no details about how this happened, but the Spirit of the Lord came on Othniel. I said that these guys were specialists in sniffing out soul danger and rescuing people. You know how they do it? The Spirit of God comes on them. It's the same way any of us do anything of any significance in the eternal realm. 
We do it because the Spirit of God is working in and through us. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, verse 10, and he won. That's it. God's with him. He wins. That's all the detail we get. Under him, the land has rest for 40 years. But catch this. When he dies, so does the rest. Othniel goes away. The peace goes away. We're going to see this cycle over and over again as well. Remember this sin cycle that we're talking about in Judges that we keep seeing? It's always reset by the forgetting of God, by doing evil. And God enslaves them again, this time for 18 years. Look at verse 14. First time it was eight years of of slavery. Now we're up to 18, and I introduce bachelor number two. I mean, judge number two, Ehud. Judges 3.15, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. How's that for intrigue, right? Any lefties in the, in the crowd? Yeah, we've got a handful of lefties. This is your guy, okay? Let me say up front, being a lefty in the Bible is not a compliment. It just isn't. I mean, we're, we're way more tolerant of lefties. No one was like shy about it. They're like, I'm the left and I'm proud and I'm raising my left hand, right? That's how we are now. That's not how it was in the Bible. Let me give you a couple of points. Um, right is right in the Bible. The right hand of blessing. Sit at my right hand. The right hand of God shatters enemies. Where's the left hand? Nowhere to be found, right? Ever. It's never a good thing, right? Fundamentally, right-handed people could handle the weaponry. Left-handed people couldn't of the day. So at least part of this is that um, it wasn't a world made for lefties, probably much like now. Lefties weren't a threat. They weren't men of warfare. Uh, if you were to think of this, I actually found a, an interesting thought here that, that a lefty is a little bit like a Prius, right? Um, Priuses are good for something, but you're not scared of a Prius, right? If you're at the line, you're, you're not sweating it. And you don't follow a Prius as a leader. You're not like, yes, I will choose to follow a Prius. If you're behind a Prius, you're a little frustrated. Now, here's what's interesting. One of our lefties in the room owns a Prius. So I'm just saying. I'm not even going to say who it is, but I'm just saying, Jeff Sloan, that this is, this is what we're looking at. All right, let's keep going. Verse 15, second part of it. And the sons of Israel's sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So, so they're going to see this wicked king. They're going to bring him tribute. I looked up tribute. I'm like, what in the world is tribute? Are they going to sing a song to him? What is that? A tribute is a, a financial contribution that, let's just say, isn't voluntary. Okay, It's a mandatory financial contribution. You know what we call that now? We call it tax. Yeah, he's going to bring the tax. This king is the conquering king. He gets to call the shots. He's like, you, you guys are going to pay me X amount. So he's coming to bring the tax to the king. Ehud has this idea to make a two-edged sword that's 18 inches long, and he takes this thing and he straps it to his right thigh, under his clothes, concealed. He's going to see the king, and he has a knife on his leg. Certainly they were frisked. No one would come into the king's presence. They were constantly having, they had security detail, just like you would now. They had security detail of anyone that's going to be in the king's presence, and they recognize that these are a conquered people, and they're going to be extra careful with him. They don't find the sword. Quite possibly because uh, you would never put a sword on your right hand if you were, you know, if you were a, a righty. So he gets through. Look at verse 17. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Is that being cruel? No, it's just being truthful. And it's an important part of the story, just like the left-handed part is earlier. 
So Ehud comes and he lets the king know that he's got a private message for the king. Hey, king, I've got a secret for you. Who doesn't love a secret, right? I mean, even kings fall for this. And so he's like, ooh, goody, a secret, right? He's like, everyone out. And I'm sure the security detail said, but wait a minute, king, you know, uh, we're going to stick around. And he shushed none of that, none of that, out. He's a Prius, right? We're, I'm okay, I can handle this guy. So he shoes everyone out of the room. And Ehud comes and he says this, I have a word of God for you. And with that, he draws his sword and he plunges this thing into the king. Verse 22, And the hilt also went in after the blade. That's the handle. And the fat closed the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the door of the roof behind him and locked them. So Ehud makes his escape, and the servants are left wondering what's going on outside. Pretty soon, the smell alerts them to the fact that the king is on the throne, right? The other one, right? And so they're just there, and after kind of an embarrassingly long time and a few like... you know, behind the door, wondering what's going on, they get the keys, they unlock the door, and they find their Lord dead on the ground. Ehud, long gone. Ehud has made his daring escape. He comes to town, he blows the trumpet, and he says this, Follow me, God has given the enemy to us today. And then look at verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. You'll never follow a Prius unless it does something supernatural and spectacular. Where you say, God had to show up, now we'll follow you, right? That's Ehud, the left-handed judge. All right, let's get to the third one. Don't blink, this is Shamgar. Verse 31, ready? After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. 600... Philistines killed with an ox goat. That's a cattle prod. Now, this is nothing to sneeze at, but when you follow Ehud, it's like you just kind of throw a few words out and it's just a raw deal, right? All we get of Shamgar is, is this little snippet of time. I want, to, I want to take these three judges and I want to draw out some things that I hope are helpful for us today. God to the rescue. God to the rescue is what you'll see all through the book of Judges. There's many characters, there's many people used, but the hero of the story of the Bible is God, every time. Was Moses a great man? Yes. Who's the hero? Not Moses. It's God, right? So it is with these judges. The methods that God uses may vary in your life, but let me just draw out some things that I see here in this chapter that certainly plays for us as well. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Number one is that God jogs your memory. The people forgot God, and then they did evil. We've seen this already several times. We're three chapters in. We'll see it some more. You'll notice that forgetting and remembering can be spiritual symptoms. There's different meanings to it, isn't it? Forget can be unable to recall, or it also can mean failing to think of, or neglecting to think of willfully. Remembering is the same way. We read about God remembering Noah. It's not that suddenly God's like, that's his name, Noah, right? 
He remembered him, meaning he intentionally put his gaze on him. He intentionally thought of him in this moment. The people in Psalm 78 remembered that God was their rock. The Most High God was their Redeemer. It's not that they had actually forgotten God, as in unable to recall who he is. They had willfully neglected putting their hope in him as their rock. You and I can recall times where forgetting and remembering had real effect on our lives, for good and for bad. There's no real details given here, but God has a way of jogging our memory, right? And sometimes it's through pain. That's the second thing that I want you to jot down is that God gives generously. God gives generously. And the people said, Amen! And they wrote worship songs. But hang on. Before you write your worship songs, let me see, let me show you how God gives generously here. Each time, except for Shamgar, because we don't know much about Shamgar, God sends the trouble generously. Each time, God sends the leader, just the right one. Each time, God sends the spirit, right? And then what's the result of this? Revival. Revival is the result of it. So part of the way that God rescues us, God comes to to our rescue, is that he gives generously. But the first part of that is God generously gives trouble. He disciplines us. Job chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 17 in your notes says this, blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Catch this, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. God gives generous amounts of trouble if that's what's needed to jog your memory, to rescue you. I wonder in your pain this morning, are you praying for rescue or are you paying, praying for repentance? I'll tell you my gut reaction every time. Get me out of this, God. I hate being uncomfortable. I hate being worried. I hate being in this predicament. Pick someone else. That's me. Are you praying for rescue or are you pay, praying for repentance? Have you even considered there might be a purpose to the pain that's going on in your life right now? Deuteronomy 11.2 It says, and consider today the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. We like to consider those second parts of God, right? But part of rescue is stopping to ponder your pain. It's just saying, God, I'm here on the anvil. You're sovereign. I'll trust that you'll leave me here not a second longer than I need to be, but help me soak in what you're doing. Help me trust that you have a purpose in this. Help me trust that that your timing has a purpose, because I can't see it right now. I don't get it. God, the lifesaver, also uses variety, right? He uses poster child leaders like Othniel. He uses non-threatening lefties, and he uses the overlooked to accomplish his will. Othniel, complete with shiny teeth. You can't find anything written bad about him. Ehud finally sees a use for his leftiness. He's like, there it is. I was ridiculed most of my life. Now I know why God made me this way. You can't find anything bad written about Shamgar, but you also realize that 22 words in the English translation sum up his entire life. 22 words. God uses the poster child. God uses a kind of no way, that not, 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 not that guy. And God uses the overlooked. 
1 Corinthians 1.26, read this later when you have more time. For consider your calling, brothers, it says, not many of you, that means some of you were this way, but not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Othniel was of noble birth, but he's the exception. God seems to love picking the one that shows off his glory the most. So people won't miss it. Here's the action for us. God the Holy Spirit works through people. It's just the way God's chosen to do it. And if you and I judge ourselves and other people by human standards, you miss it. The hope is all God's. The glory is all God's. So God uses memory and trouble and variety to accomplish his will. This last one involves us. Number four is huge. God answers our cry. Again, we don't see much in Shamgar because we didn't see much about the Shamgar story anyway. But in the first two, it explicitly says that the people cried out to God, verses 9 and verse 15. Do you notice that the technique and the timing and how often they cried out to God is all dismissed? We don't, we don't know that. That's part of what I, I, you know, starts to stir in me. Well, how long have they been crying out? How did they do it? Did they each individually do it? Did they sign a vow card? What did they do? None of that. The people cried out to God, and he answered. Here's my question, friends. Where do you go for help? What is it that you trust to save you? I'll tell you how you can know the, you can know the answer to this by, by who you cry out to, who you run to. So it doesn't matter really what you think or what you feel or what you'd write down. Who you cry out to is who you're looking to for help. We have a lot of crying out going on in our home. This week, with this message mulling around in my head, I'm in the bedroom and we're getting some stuff done. And the way we can get some stuff done in our house sometimes is we close the bedroom door. And the kids know, in theory, that when the door's closed, there always has to be a knock, right? Sometimes we lock the door, right? This was one of those occasions. We're inside, we're, we're getting stuff done. We hear a knock at the door. Mommy? Yeah, what is it? It's Kaya. Uh, mommy's busy. Kaya. But I'm bleeding. Mom, is it dripping? <laughs> I just read, this is our life, okay? So there's, so there's this pause. There's this pause. And she says, no, but can I come in? She knew she had immediate access if she was just bleeding more. Mom says, wait. There's a knock again. Now, this whole episode was, was so fantastic. I jotted it down quickly so I wouldn't lose it. The persistence reveals something about my five-year-old daughter, Kaya. It reveals her security, doesn't it? It reveals that she has faith that she's going to get a response, and that response resides behind this door and with a person named Mom. She has this trust that her need will be met. She has confidence that she won't get in trouble for crying out. Even when told, wait, she knows she's not a bother. So she knocks some more and waits behind the closed door. This is huge. Church, do you know to go to God? If you think that God just comes to the rescue, 
then he may be your last resort. Kind of an afterthought. After you've tried everything else, you go, oh, I guess I'll try God as well. God comes to the rescue. I've read about it on my phone. But if you are utterly convinced and if you have experienced that God comes to my rescue, then he'll be your first and only choice. You won't try God and when he says, wait, you rush off elsewhere. You try God and he says, wait, and you keep knocking and you try some more. Why? He's your first and only and best option. That's it. God comes to my rescue. Do you know to come to God? Did you know that Jesus teaches us to be like a persistent five-year-old when it comes to prayer? And he also teaches that God won't always answer on the first pass. Sometimes there's a sense of mommy's busy. Not yet. Not right now. Some of you are in that prayer cycle right now. That's tough. But you know, even if we aren't bleeding out, Jesus says, come, ask, seek. God is your rescue. You know what's powerful about these stories? The same people who forgot God and invited others into the dance and did wicked things are the same people who cried out and God acted. That's really hopeful for us rebels. You know why? The same people in this room who this morning are crying out to God are the same people who do evil, wicked things. And God still acts today, just like we read about in Judges. Here's my action step for you this morning. It's to cry out to God. It's to cry out to God. God had a purpose in their pain, and even in the timing of the rescue, interesting that we get to see eight years of slavery, this many years of rest, 18 years of slavery, this many years of rest. God's not late. God never seems to come early. God's right on time. You know, God had every right to simply allow them to wallow in the mess they've made, right? Hey, you guys made your bed, now you're going to lie in it. We see the character of God by seeing mercy. The people of Israel had a couple of options. And this time, they, instead of choosing to rely on their own strength, their own might, their own military prowess, what did they do? They cried out to God. Kids, this is a telephone. Yeah, I didn't explain that. Yeah, this is, this used to have a wire behind it right here. I thought for dramatic effect I could do that and grab the whole bunch of wire like we used to do, right? I had a college student today said, yeah, I remember making a phone call on one of those once. Yeah. <laughs> Check it out. Remember this? Remember you did that a lot? Yeah. Right? So that is a telephone. Just what it is. Yeah. So we finally get the Israelites in, in, in God's timing, they finally waited and thought more important, you know, let's cry out to God than, than trust in our own military power. God, we're powerless against you. We have a lot of people this morning in this church and around our neighborhood and in your neighborhoods and places of school and business who are in an absolute world of hurt. What do you do when you're hurting? What do you do? John 6.63, it's in your notes. It says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Cry out to God. It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Friends, that's the good news. That's why Christians have the goofy smile on their face. They go, I can't get enough of this. You don't understand how freeing that is. That Jesus tells me the flesh is of no use at all. It has to be the Spirit's work. Ehud, are you kidding me? Othniel, okay, I could have seen that one maybe a little bit. God, you, you work and will however you choose. It's the Spirit that's there. Have you cried out for rescue? Acts 2.21 says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We just sang the song, Came to My Rescue. And listen, listen to it now in light of the Scriptures this morning. I called, you answered, and you came to my rescue. Do you hear it? I mean, it's Judges 3 that we're singing. I've asked the band to, to lead us in that chorus again so that we, can, that we can sing it in light of the scriptures that we just read. I want to have you use this song to do three, three things. One is use it to remember. You know, remembering often involves turning. Think about going out to the car, forgetting the tickets. What do you do when you remember? You turn around to go get the tickets and come back in, right? That's, that's, that's how it is with spiritual remembering too. Maybe this morning, God's jogged your memory. You're remembering Him. God, I, I forgot. I thought it was the flesh. I've been striving again. So what do you do? You don't drive off without the tickets. You turn around. That's what repentance is. You turn around. God, I've been living like pagans. That's not you. That's not for me. I'm your child. I'm turning around. I'm remembering. Let this song jog your memory and turn around. Use this song to cry out. Many of you in this room probably can think of a prodigal in your life that you say, God, I am begging you, turn that person around. Turn them back to you. You know what a prodigal needs most is to be honest about their own sin and to cry out for rescue. Pray that for a prodigal. Be honest about their own sin and to cry out for rescue. Here's the interesting part. Maybe you are the biggest prodigal in your life. Maybe it's you. If you can see that this morning, man, you ought to be hugely thankful. If you can identify, I'm the prodigal. God's brought you here to church. God's revealing that you're the biggest prodigal in your life. Turn. Get honest about your sin. Cry out to Him. Finally, use this song to remain. This song goes on to a line that says this, I want to be where you are. God, I want to be where you are. Psalm 27, 14 says this, Stay with God. Take heart. Don't quit. I'll say it again. Stay with God. Most of us, if we had four things to give advice to someone... We would never use the same thing twice, stay with God, unless it was super, super important. Like the main thing that we ought to pay, be paying attention to. Stay with God. Be strong. Don't quit. Stay with God. What happened to Israel? They forgot. 
forgetting led to wandering, and wandering led to outright evil. Our help comes from God in His way and in His time. Stay with Him. Remain with Him. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and I want to read a prayer that I found in a book called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And it was so good, I just want to quote it verbatim. Jesus, you're the judge who endured the judgment I deserve. Savior who provides the rescue I don't deserve. I lift up my eyes to see your salvation and wait for you to bring your saving work to its full consummation. Amen.